This is a sermon given at St. David's Episcopal Church in Austin, Texas. Visit our website at stdave.org. In my effort to bring some context to this passage for you, I found the words of Diana Butler Bass to be helpful. Caesarea Philippi, she says, seems to be a significant detail. Otherwise, why even name the place where this conversation between Jesus and his disciples occurred? We might see the larger claim being made through this text if we spend a moment understanding what this place was and what it meant. Before it was Caesarea Philippi, it was known as Panius and was devoted to the worship of a half-goat, half-man deity named Pan. Just a few decades before our story, the Roman Emperor Augustus had placed governance of Pania in the hands of Herod the Great. To express his gratitude, Herod built a large temple made of white marble dedicated to his benefactor, Caesar Augustus. After Herod died, his son Philip inherited governance of the territory, and a rebranding commenced. Panias became Caesarea Philippi, named for Caesar Augustus and Philip himself. It was a place that represented the power of the empire and reiterated the values of imperial theology. Caesar is Lord, and Rome wins at all costs. We know that powers and principalities, most of all, are temporary. They shift in allegiance and alliance over moving from one source to another, one leader to another, ever fighting for control over resources and people, and they oppress in order to achieve their aims. The same cannot be said for God. It is clear that God does not work for power, but instead is always the source of it. Never needing to seek or shift when things change, God is always working, sometimes in secret, consistently in love to bring about God's kingdom. This is vastly different from any human power that we could possibly conjure or raise up in a king. In Exodus, we hear that a king arose in Egypt who did not know Joseph. This king was determined to oppress the people and did so ruthlessly, the story says. But they were not able to oppress them ruthlessly because the more they oppressed them, the more the people of the Israelites multiplied and spread until the king demanded actual genocide and the killing of male babies. That is a hard, hard read if you stop before the birth of Moses. If you stop reading before the beauty of the women who will not let it stand. Even Pharaoh's daughter participates in the saving of Moses. And might I say, thank God. We read that Moses was saved by God working through powerful women who overtly held no sway in society. But what we realize is that covertly, their power is far greater than anyone knows. 
In truth, we would not be here today, but for those midwives who ushered in the lives of Moses, working in secret to subvert the law. In Matthew, we see that God reveals to Peter that Jesus is the Messiah. God uses Peter, of all people, to show a future that Christ has not even begun to live into. In fact, Jesus says to Peter in that moment, there is no one on earth in flesh who could have told you this. It was God who revealed it to you. You see, up until that point in Matthew, Jesus had really revealed nothing. He'd maybe performed a miracle or two. But so far in the gospel, he has been teaching and telling parables and otherwise laying this groundwork. He hasn't even proclaimed any good news yet. <laughs> he hasn't shared who he is at all. And it is for this reason that he swears Peter to secrecy. He tells them all, do not tell anyone. Jesus is also subverting as the midwives were. Jesus in this moment is working in quiet to bring about God's reign. He is not yet ready to go public with his campaign. <laughs> and this matters. It matters to Jesus then and it matters the same way now. Because we know that if we are to turn the tide of public opinion, that the timing has to be just right in order to get the populace on our side. We know that if someone doesn't promote a platform or agenda in just the right way, that they will push against the powers that decide how we live and who gets to thrive. I wonder if Jesus understood that if he showed his hand too early, that his life might be lost before he had a chance to make an impact. And that if he waited too long, he might lose the disciples as well. You might say that Jesus has been closeted this way, that he's been waiting for the right time to be who he was brought on this earth to be. He is certainly waiting until it is safe before he reveals himself publicly. This is a story we hear of Moses as well. Moses is to be hidden. He has to bide his time until he has grown to begin living the life that was intended for him. Now, let me tell you that ministry doesn't come immediately for anyone. Prophets and people, for that matter, need time to grow, to become, to discern. So Jesus and Moses and Chuck and I both wait until their way is clear because they are at great risk, Moses and Jesus. Not Chuck and I. <laughs> Jesus and Moses wait until their way is clear because they are at great risk. For this reason, their communities hold them, hide them, preparing their way, making them strong enough, loved enough, and ready. We know something about power, don't we? And we know what it means for those at risk to lie and wait, to be hidden for their own safety as they stand to lose themselves. We've lost a couple of dear families from our congregation this year 
due to powers and principalities that threaten to bind on earth the glory brought to bear in each of God's people. Matthew tells us that what we bind here on earth, we will also bind in heaven. And he tells us that what we loose here on earth, we will loose in heaven. And this seems kind of important, particularly since we plan to dwell there for eternity. If we bind God's glory here, then we bind it in heaven. And if we loose oppression here, we will loose it in heaven. Now, before you become despondent, let me bring us to the epistle. It's from Paul's letter to the Romans. And this reading is the beginning of a passage where Paul is typically assumed to be um, imparting the law or at least telling us about his ethics. And I know, I think we assume this because we know Paul to be Jewish and we want to honor Paul in that way. But let me assure you that Paul only ever intends to speak theologically. As he is the apostle to the Gentiles, his job as he knew it was to teach Jesus' followers to follow Christ in the way of love. So Paul, in an effort to lead the believers in Rome, warns them, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, do not be bound in your thoughts and actions. He implores us, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If your gift is prophecy, then use it in proportion to your faith. If your gift is service, then use it for your serving. He who teaches, use it in his teaching. He who exhorts in his exhortation. And he who contributes in liberality. She who gives aid, use that gift with zeal. You see, we are imbued by grace with gifts that are given to us by God. Let us use them, loved ones. Loose them on earth. In this time when so many of us are at the bitter mercy of powers that work to oppress or break our spirits, to drive us away, let us remember that God will never rest in God's efforts to bring about God's kingdom. Neither shall we. Let us use our gifts to usher in as midwives a new time where we, as Paul says in the very next verse, let love be genuine, hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good, Let us usher in a time where we love one another with brotherly affection. Let us rejoice in the multitude expressions of God's great glory. Let us end oppression of those equally loved by God and celebrate every gift that is given by God's grace. Let us lose all of that on earth that it may be loosed in heaven. To the glory of your name. Amen. 
You can find more lectures and sermons on iTunes by searching for St. David's Episcopal Church in Austin, Texas, or visit our website at stdave.org and click on the podcast button.